It rests on 13 acres of earth over the very center of hell. Here is the first motion picture to offer to the daring a look into the final maddening space between life and death. The last house on the left. To avoid fainting, keep repeating. It's only a movie. Only a movie. Only a movie. Hello listeners and welcome to the second episode of Gutter Flicks. This is the podcast that I guess is becoming the de facto. We have nothing for this week, so let's find something to shuffle out there. I'm actually recording this the day it goes up, so it'll be up a little bit late, but that's because we had originally planned to go see Underwater for opening weekend, and we were going to talk about that as a follow-up to our aquatic horror episode. Uh, but unfortunately, our city was dubbed the coldest place on Earth, and that is not an exaggeration. And so we were pretty much housebound. And so between that uh, shift in plans at sort of the last minute, having family visiting, and Arya getting back into her practicum and job stuff after the break, it's been a bit dicey to find time to watch stuff. However, since I am completely housebound for the time being because I will probably die if I venture out into the cold for too long. It has been a bonanza of trash cinema and so what better time to dust off gutter flicks with a continuation into the weird, bizarre, moral panic that is the video nasties. This week I wanted to cover one of the more notorious of the bunch. It's uh, got a lot of cult appeal to it now, and I'm also going to cover another band movie that is a imitator to this original one, but we're talking Last House on the Left from 1972. Now, this is Wes Craven's first major picture, and I say major in scare quotes because this was a low-budget exploitation movie affair, but it has cachet of, it It has that backing of a cinematic release, it's shot on film, it has uh, all the hallmarks of an indie flick. This is one of those video nasties that definitely lives up to its reputation. On this latest viewing, it was probably the easiest time I've had with this movie, which can be quite difficult to sit through, and that's only because uh, I watched it as a refresher after watching a slew of other crass, fucked up movies. So I think by the time I got around to this one, which was third or fourth in the marathon, uh, I'd sort of grown this crust on my eyeballs that helped the horrible images not penetrate so deeply into my brain. The plot and setup of this is a fairly straightforward one. We see um, teenage Mary Collingwood, you know, living the living the good life as uh, a doted upon daughter to uh, a doctor and his wife. 
this is sort of, uh, this is 1972, so this is sort of when the sexual revolution's going on, and they have a run on this early in the movie, where the you see that cultural shift between Mary and her parents, uh, but, you know, she's there, her birthday is coming up, her 17th birthday, and her parents are doting on her, they're planning this big party for her, and she's just off to the city with her friend Phyllis to go to a concert, um, and it's you get this weird mix going on where you have these sort of like stiff off like parents, the flower child kind of freedom of Mary and the sort of scuzzy city life along with a man they're seeing called Bloodlust. And so you got all these cultural things impacting each other in the setup of this movie. And of course, uh, given this is a rough exploitation movie, that good life is going to be shattered. As in their city, in the city, they're trying to score some weed, and they happen along the wrong scuzzy guy, who takes them back to this motel where a bunch of fugitives are hiding out. And now these fugitives, they're they are gross, gross people, and the movie plays them up as such. But I wonder if it's an element of the time getting into the backstory of how they they play it, because we see a lot of the movie through the fugitives. Uh, eyes and like they they crack jokes and they have banter and all that stuff but nothing they do can be considered good or they don't even fit anti-heroes they're just gross gross people all the way through but their backstories they give them they just sound off on the onset so even when you see this banter before they get into their awful actions it's hard to sympathize like uh, they're described as rapists and murderers and uh Weasel, the sort of henchman to the main bad guy Krug, Weasel is described as being a child molester. Like, it's it's just, it kind of hits you in the face where you're thinking like, okay, so these people are fucking awful human beings. Am I supposed to be enjoying their sort of like weird banter? And in a way, they're kind of goofballs. And the movie has this contrast between the horrible atrocities and these weird goofball moments throughout. But anyway, so we have the teen girls showing up in this place and realizing that they have been trapped. And what ensues is the fugitives taking them out to the woods and committing all kinds of unspeakable acts. I'm talking violence, torture, rape, like everything you would expect from a video nasty. This one, again, lives up to its its reputation there. But what they don't realize is that they're doing this just... On the other side of a small pond from Mary's home, it's like one of those almost karmic kind of happenstances where they show up out in the woods, like right in the perfect place that they're committing these crimes, like right adjacent to in the woods surrounding this good life, this humble homestead. So it, it's weird. It almost has that uh, betrayal of the home invasion movie without it actually being a home invasion movie. So with this setup here and this sort of first half of the movie, it's pretty easy to see why this one sort of ran afoul of the censors and the people that were sort of up in arms against the so-called video nasties. And I've said that phrase a few times in case you haven't listened to the first Gutter Flicks episode, Video Nasty was a name dubbed to a moral panic over these extreme horror movies that were banned and prosecuted in the UK. They were sort of blamed for all of society's ills. And if you're a fan of exploitation movie or a horror collector, there's sort of a... This is like one of those lists where, like for me, I collect the video nasties. I've gone out of my way to try and get the more obscure ones. I'm only missing two at this point. I'm so close to having all 72. But... 
Yeah, so there's it, it creates this almost like hierarchy of degradation and horrors and terrible titillation in these movies because of the notoriety that came out of England surrounding them. So this was one of the video nasties and one of the ones that earns its reputation as a lot of them you sit there wondering how is anyone offended by this? How is this seen as a moral imperative to do away with this movie? But not last I was on the left and I think a big part of that is the sexual violence which was a hard target for the censors when they were sort of cultivating this list of video nasties. And it's interesting because I so disagree with the moral panic going on. I completely find it ridiculous that society's ills can be slapped on these movies and all that. But in a sort of broken clock is right twice a day kind of idea, I can get behind their what they found objectionable. I mean, if you're going to ban these movies, the stuff that they really were hard on was sexualized violence, rape as entertainment, and uh, misogyny in film. And, you know, those are sort of like things that get me the most and I think are also endemic in society in a way where, you know, seeing them played as entertainment in films begins to become a little problematic. Not that I'm uh, on the side of the censors or that I think that these movies should have been banned or, again, fiction should be blamed for for reality to the extent that it was but it's interesting to be like oh okay you're you're talking about why you hate these movies and i i can kind of see why that makes them so objectionable because that's what makes them objectionable to me as in my search to try and find the most fucked up movies i can find and i mean the in this one i would hardly say the rape scene is glorified it's not supposed to be tantalizing for the audience however the the characters the bad guys who i described as being completely objectionable from the get out they are reveling in it and a lot of the torture and torment and sort of gross feeling you get from watching this movie comes out of how much they revel in it and it reaches a point where after they have uh, killed these two girls, they even sort of take this moment where you just see sort of the uh, looks on their faces, like these blank stares. And it's not so much like guilt as almost they just realize maybe they went too far and now they've got to deal with the mess they've made. And I mean that literally too. There is a scene of them washing up in the pond where they executed Mary. Uh, trying to scrub all the blood off before making themselves presentable to go to the very next house, the titular last house on the left, that belongs to her parents. Uh, but before we get into that sort of flip and we get into the revenge side, there's one thing that really bothered me about the sexualization at the beginning of the movie, and it's the sexualization of youth by adults and all that. There's this line very early on, uh, like the opening shots of the movie, is the post office guy or the postal worker pulling up in his car with a bunch of mail to deliver. And the mailbox, it has Mary's name sharpied on the side with like a heart and an arrow going through it. Just a little doodle on there. And he's just reading the letters. It's like Mary Collingwood, Mary Collingwood. Boy, you'd think she's the only person to reach the age of 17. And, you know, it's like, okay, that's kind of whatever but he immediately is after to be fair she's probably the greatest piece i've ever seen or something along those lines and like this old fucking post guy just basically is like hell yeah teenagers that rules and it's kind of creepy and then we immediately cut to mary in the shower and you know there's nudity in this scene as she showers off and it's got the soft gentle music as the camera lingers and all that and 
there it's trying to evoke this kind of like purity and again with the beginning of the sexual revolution this sort of burgeoning sexuality but it's done in this very milgazy way that makes it like I don't know how you would depict what it's trying to depict in another way, but it adds to the skis level. Like, it's not necessarily pleasant to sort of watch it once it's contextualized, because there's just this kind of weird... Like, you see that stuff in media all the time. You see that in a lot of literature, where it's just like, we're going to equal parts sexualize you and infantilize you, and... It, it kind of it rubbed me the wrong way sort of thing like you know again not to the point where I want to jump on the moral panic bandwagon but it's another element that I think gets overlooked a lot when they talk about the sexual violence because uh, they really are building that dichotomy of uh, sort of innocence and then uh, I, I hate the phrasing but like a sexual ruin kind of thing is what they're going for but in doing so, there's there's a blurring of it that just kind of, it, it sits a little uncomfortable, I guess. Anyway, um, so as the big turn in the movie goes, the killers make their way over to the Collingwood's house. And that is where they've cleaned up. They've changed their clothes. I don't know where the fuck they got their change of clothes from. Presumably the car, uh, but the car's broken out, broken down out front. And... Um, yeah, anyway, they got the they got cleaned up almost to the point where they look like they're selling Bibles door to door or something. And they've shown up and the good doctor has good hospitality and he lets them in as they explain that their car is stranded and they're kind of stuck. And the doctor offers to, you know, take them in, take care of them and uh, put them up in the guest room or in this case in Mary's room because they can't drive them into town because Mary's got the car. And what we see is uh, there's this, they, they point at how big of a coincidence this is in the movie where the killers find photos of Mary in the, in her bedroom. And they're just like, oh, what are the odds of that kind of thing? Like it's, uh, it's almost that by uh, gesturing to it, the movie absolves itself of how huge a leap in reality there is here that these because uh, it's not like they abducted her just down the street or the town over. She went all the way to the city. They abducted her there, and then they're leaving the state. And they happen to break down right outside her parents' house. So it's one of those things where, in one sense, it's uh, you have to really suspend your disbelief there. But in the other sense, it makes for a great sort of dramatic irony and this sort of like cinematic foil of how you construct the revenge portion of these rape-revenge movies. And this it almost feels like a almost comedy of errors. Like this, you get this sequence of the revenge where the doctors rigged traps all over the house to get them, and it's like a much later sort of Home Alone thing. Except you know, no one's getting hit by a tool chest and shaking it off, and it makes for this uh, interesting fight sequence. And uh, I think it makes it a little more believable because Krug is sort of this ex-con probably spent a lot of time in the yard pumping iron kind of guy against this near pensioner doctor I, I think it adds to the stakes a little bit because the hero isn't your sort of macho typical uh, movie lead kind of guy he is sort of hampered by his age and his ability and this leads into another part of this that i will get into a lot more later in the episode but his sort of upper class not having to engage in physical labor or anything like that because there is a big class element in this movie 
Um, Krug even comments on it, deriding them for being uh, rich, fancy people, making fun of their etiquette, like their silverware, where it's like you got 16 different spoons for, for every pea on the plate. But yeah, I'll return to class a bit later when we get into our other movie of the night. Before then, uh, there is this idea of karma going on in how the parents of their murdered daughter are able to sort of piece together that they did this. And in all of the movies that we watch, there's sort of a different take on how the parents find out, and it's to do with clothing in them all. In this one, it's an accessory that uh, Estelle, the mother, gave Mary at the beginning. It's this little necklace thing of a peace sign. No, sorry, her dad gave it to her, but she thanks them both. And it's funny because it's something that'd be very unique now, but in 1972, it's one of those things where it's like seeing that on one of the killer's necks. They meet, they, they don't know anything is wrong with Mary. They don't know that these people are fugitives. They seem upstanding. But that little item immediately, it's like, oh no, something's happened kind of thing. Like they do have to go out and find the body to get their suspicions confirmed. But I'm wondering in 1972, you know, it's just three years after Woodstock, is the peace sign that unique of an item like to have on a chain? It almost seems to me like it's uh, the hippie era version of wearing a crucifix around your neck. But nevertheless, this is how they sort of figure out who these guys are. And we get this great revenge sequence. Just, uh, oh, and it really sets the tone and time of this movie when we get this graying doctor with a mustard yellow turtleneck and uh, he's just like revving a chainsaw and just chopping through all his ritzy furniture and coffee tables and stuff trying to kill Krug who's scrambling around with some buckshot in his shoulder and it's just this great sequence but it feels like him slashing his way through the decor of the house and the outfit he's he's wearing it's such a 70s moment it sort of marks the beginning of the era of rougher horror movies too in that this isn't that far removed from when night of the living dead came out and was considered so obscene and we just saw this huge like exponential increase in what could be shown in movies going into the 70s and this is an early contender for that so it's quite fun seeing the sort of what now seems dated, almost kitschy decor set against this over-the-top violent scene. Overall, I think this movie is, it kind of earns its reputation both as a hard-to-sit-through movie, even if the budget and some of the dated aspects perhaps dial it back a little bit. It earns its reputation both as an extreme movie as well as an important movie. Uh, it's been ripped off and imitated numerous times, even though it itself it can be seen and read as an imitation of an earlier movie. I'll get into that too. But before I do, I want to talk about the villain of this movie, Krug, played by David Hess. He is in a few movies like this. You could actually do a good triple feature of this uh, another video nasty, The House on the Edge of the Park, and the movie Hitchhike, where he sort of plays the same character in all three. Just this menacing guy who commits sexual violence and physical violence on, uh, not to imply that sexual violence isn't physical violence, but it's, uh, he plays this skeezy, 
disgusting character so well, which makes it so interesting to to juxtapose that with the music that plays in this movie, because the guy who played the villain also did the music, and it is just like the most almost flamboyant, folksy kind of hippie music going on. You got lots of harmonicas and acoustic guitars and like almost happy in a weird way, like songs like Wait for the Rain and The Road Goes to Nowhere. It's like there's this sadness and sort of creepy element to the lyrics in this context, but it also feels like a forlorn like folk song. And then, of course, you get stuff like when he's fucking Sadie in the car while driving down the road and there's a kazoo solo playing so this movie is tonally all over the place that brings me to the cops in this movie this could be something that undoes a lot of the movie depending on how you feel about the use of comedic timing and comic relief I think the timing's a bit off, although I don't have much problem with the juxtaposition there. It's just it doesn't quite gel for me in this movie. But the cops are total bumbling idiots in this, and, like, you know, I have no problem with that depiction. But it plays to the point where it's almost like a, a Laurel and Hardy skit whenever they're on the, sc- the screen. And these little interjections uh, come up during the really violent, harrowing moments, And it's almost like a bit of a relief, like, okay, you've got room to breathe now before we get back into it. And so that dread builds, like, when is it going to get horrible again? But at the same time, it lessens the impact for sure. And the scenes don't always work. Some of them are are, are pretty funny. Um, Like when they're trying to get on the Ada's chicken truck and Ada, the driver, is refusing to help the cops out because her chickens are more important. But at the same time... The characters are so bumbling and stupid that it really is a farce. Like, it, it feels like a Three Stooges routine if uh, two of them decided to go through the police academy. But looking at the originator for this film, as I mentioned, this one has many imitators that followed, but it itself is sort of a reworking of Igmar Bergman's The Virgin Spring from 1960. Um, this was put out by the Criterion Collection, so I did, have a manage- I did manage to watch it before coming to this episode. It's funny, because I had heard that it's sort of a reworking, and like, you know, it's like slightly related, but the plot really, really feels like Last House on the Left just transposed to a different time and culture. Uh, Virgin Spring takes place in medieval times in Sweden, and where there's this sort of karmic retribution in Last House on the Left, that's replaced with extreme religiosity. And I think Bergman's definitely making a statement on that, but at the same time, there's this, uh, it's interesting to see how religion plays that role in this. What we have is these people that make candles to take to the church. They send their daughter off on this expedition to the church, which is clearly a far way away by horseback, and she wants their very pregnant uh, maid to accompany them. And the maid is sort of resentful and jealous of the daughter and prays to Odin into this pagan ritual, hoping hoping that bad things will fall the daughter. And unfortunately, they do. And But this is where we get really similar in The Last House on the Left, because uh, she befalls these guys in the woods who lure her away with a ruse. Like in Last House on the Left, it was, I've got some really good Colombian pot, come get some. In this, it's uh, she's trying to help them because they're playing up the need, needy beggar, sort of like peasants in the countryside 
kind of thing, and she wants to share food with them. Uh, but he says that God, or if you're, if this food was meant for you, God ordains that you eat it too. So let's all go have a meal out in the clearing. And uh, so she follows them, and they set upon her, uh, and it's a, a rape murder, just like in in uh, Last House on the Left. It's not nearly as extreme as Last House on the Left, but at the same time, it was a little more than I was anticipating from a 1960 Bergman movie. It doesn't really shy away from it, but as luck would have it, or fate would have it, the uh, rapists end up at her parents' doorstead, and being, like, nice, helpful people, they let them in for the night to have shelter, because, you know, they're penniless beggars and all that. It's these uh, two adults and their much younger brother who's a child, and so they figure, like, oh, we have to show them that good, good host sort of thing, which... I really wish Aria was here to do this episode for me for this part because she would be able to go more into the important nature of the host as far as like a Scandinavian folklore goes and uh, medieval times because she studied on it and I've heard her talk about it at length. Um, maybe I'll see if she can whip something up to add to this at a later date. But what we have here is um, they much like the mother in Last House finds the necklace, they try to sell the dress that the daughter wore. And it's a very unique dress. They go over it in great detail, how it's like hand-stitched by 15 maidens, and uh, it's very unique color. We don't see the color. It's a black-and-white movie. But they go into this a lot at the beginning of the film. And so when the uh, criminals come back and say that it belonged to their sister who passed and try to sell it back to the mother... She immediately gets to thinking and just plays it like I have to check with my husband for permission, see what a good worthy reward for this would be. But she shows it to the husband and they immediately decide on revenge. And given the religiosity of the movie, this feels way less like coincidence and more of a hand of God kind of thing, sort of like there is a religious fatalistic aspect that drove the, the bandits to the door of the parents so the parents could exact retribution. And they do. It's kind of brutal, like, uh, for a movie before you could really show gore or violence. But, I mean, one of them gets knocked into the fire and burned to death. Uh, one gets stabbed in the neck. And the child just gets thrown at the wall. And so it's this kind of brutal uh, sequence. And the father immediately prostrates himself in front of the Lord and just wants forgiveness, even though he says he doesn't deserve it. They set out to find the body of their daughter, and when they do, uh, he curses the Lord, saying, I don't understand why you do this, but I beg your forgiveness anyway, and vows to build a church where his daughter was taken. And it feels like almost like religious fervor and zealotry in the face of blind tragedy. It makes for this interesting kind of... Is this a, a comment from, because given a lot of Bergman's other work, it's interesting to see where he might be commenting on blindness of faith versus uh, religious fortitude. It kind of left a bit of a bad taste in my mouth because uh, they, you have to think of this in a different time. This was set in like 1300s and all that, where as in watching this now in a more secular society, it just feels like really... Uh, it almost lessens their retribution a bit, but at the same time, it adds to their righteousness. So it's a weird juxtaposition. And then when you transplant that to Last House on the Left, where it is that age of 
the sexual revolution and we have youth culture changing so drastically in a fairly short span, at least as far as cultural ephemera goes. But it's an interesting juxtaposition because the parents almost represent an ideology that you would see with the Virgin Spring and uh, the children and the Bennets sort of show the excess of the 70s that would be coming out and the nihilism there. So I think uh, maybe that wasn't as intentional because, you know, they were making it contemporaneous at the time, but watching it now some, oh God, what is that, 45 years later? You see how much the the time period plays a role in Last House on the Left. That didn't stop them from remaking it, however, because in 2009, I can't believe it's already over 10 years old, Last House on the Left was remade. I didn't see it because when it came out, I was still really iffy on wanting to support remakes of classic horror flicks. Um, I'd seen a few that I'd liked, I'd seen a few that I hate, but I didn't really feel the need to to sort of like dive into that too much. Plus this sort of came when the glut of the so-called torture porn and extreme cinema was sort of coming to my head and I was just kind of tired of it at this point. So I didn't really see a need to watch it when it came out. And I gotta say, having sat on it, let it cool for a bit, it's uh, pretty solid. It's, uh, you know, it's uh, probably not gonna last in the annals of cinematic history as far as what I hold important, but at the same time, I, I don't think it was a worthless remake. And it showed that the plot does work in different time periods, like with the medieval setting of Virgin Spring and the sort of hippie era of Last House on the Left, this still works at the end of the 2000s. It doesn't feel like it was out of place or out of step. They did that thing they did in a lot of remakes at the time where they sort of expanded on a lot of things that didn't necessarily need expanding, but they used it a little bit better in this. Like, for example, they have this whole, like, intro thing where we see how the main character, Mary, played by Sarah Paxton of The Innkeepers, uh, we see how she's really into swimming and all that, which plays a part later when they recreate the scene when Mary, uh, after the rape, walks into the pond. It uh, adds a twist to that that wasn't there in the first one. And so at first it just feels like, well, I kind of had a feeling that this was coming because I had seen the original so many times. But it's one of those things where at the very beginning it just seems like this is an odd character detail to really throw in there. Uh, and another big change was they made Krug's son so much more sympathetic in this one. I'm not saying I totally sympathize with him, but at the same time, in the first one, because he's been hooked on heroin by his dad, he goes out and purposely lures the girls back. Now you could say that that was because he's being held hostage by his addiction for sure, but he still is an actor in it, whereas in this one, uh, he brings the teens back to give them some weed, and when uh, the Krug and the gang finally show up, he seems surprised, like they weren't supposed to be home, so he wasn't bringing them back specifically to hand over to the uh, criminal gang. This one really gets in on the extreme horror of the late 2000s. We have so many elaborate, elaborate in-your-face little gore set pieces. Like, when one of the bad guys, played by Aaron Paul, before he was much more famous, I guess, uh, gets his hands stuck down a garburator, and 
you know, blood's gooshing out. We see the chopped up hand after and all that stuff. And it just feels a little more in your face. And that happens very much in the last shots of the movie with the uh, final vengeance. But when you're, it doesn't feel out of step given the movie you're remaking. Because I think uh, with Last House, well, supposedly there was even worse stuff shot for it that never made it. And it's not available anymore. Like the footage is gone. Uh, but even what we got in the uncut version that was banned in the UK, it's very extreme. And if there's anything that's held back, it's because of the budget, not because of the desire to make this sort of like cruel little flick. And so that translates a lot with this. Maybe that's uh, across the board with these extreme remakes of video nasties compared to when they take something more innocuous and then just amp up the gore and violence because it's a modern take on it. Another thing of note that really tickled me was that Sadie is played by Ricky Landholm, who is Garfunkel of Garfunkel and Oates. That was, uh, as soon as she showed up, I'm like, oh, why is she familiar? And I think it took me a while to place her more because of the juxtaposition of the comedy roles I'm usually used to seeing her in compared to such an extreme movie playing such a fucking dirtbag. One thing I really enjoyed about the turn in this movie was that the uh, the bad guys don't clue in until it's too late that they are in the parents' house. The parents figure it out because the son sees the photo of Mary and just immediately becomes ill throwing up, and he has her necklace, so he purposely places it for the parents to find it, and so they know that the uh, sons, the uh, gang did something. And so it, it adds a little more believability to why the gang sleeps easy while the uh, family sets up the revenge. And even then, they get up to their gross shit. Like uh, Aaron Paul's character, Francis, comes down and basically tries to seduce the wife. And she, as part of the ruse, is very receptive to it. But it makes you wonder what would he have done if she was unaware and was not compliant, I suppose would be the phrase. Uh, because he is seen completely to be a violent, misogynistic sexual predator, and he plays the role fantastically. Like, any time he was on screen, I thought, like, oh, this dude is so gross. But yeah, for what it is, I, th I think The Last House on the Left remake is worth watching if you are one who, you know, doesn't let remakes or whatever ruin enjoyment of the original. Definitely seen worse remakes, that is for sure. But that is a straight-up remake. Last House on the Left has had a slew of imitators. One of the more prominent ones was itself a video nasty, and that is the second main movie of the night I want to talk about. That is 1975's Night Train Murders, or as it was banned in England, Late Night Trains, or as it was titled in Italy, L'Ultimo Treno della Notte. This was directed by Aldo Lado. And this is a nasty little movie. This is a vicious, vicious flick. And it kind of adds to my working theory that when watching extreme cinema and exploitation movies, they do a good thing with juxtaposition where the more serene, calm, and upbeat the theme music is that plays at the start of the movie, the rougher the movie you're going to see. And this, like, goes across the board. Like, Last House on the Left has such, like, simple acoustic guitar thing with this soft crooning over it. You have this sort of, like, hippie folksy thing at the beginning of Late Night Trains. It's like Cannibal Holocaust with... That's, like, the, the king shit of this, uh, this notion where they have that 
sort of mixture of acoustic guitar and synth thing by Riz Ortolani that plays over the shots of the jungle, the verdant green jungle. And you just hear this like almost calming, soothing music. And so these movies that do this, you just know you're in for a fucking wild time. And that's the case with Night Train Murders. It follows a very similar kind of premise to Last House in that these two teens run afoul of some gross criminals and they engage in horrible acts upon them. And eventually the criminals wind up at the parents' house. But what we have here is these uh, girls are moving from Germany to Italy for Christmas. They're going to visit one of the girls' parents in Italy after studying for a while in Germany. And their train gets delayed. And so they get on the train, this other train that's almost deserted. And it's got these two gross guys. Like we, the, their intros, we see them mugging people and beating people up and doing stuff like that. Uh, they are on the train too, and they at first they try to be all like friendly, bumming cigarettes and just being all like affable, trying to play suave and slick. But when it come, push comes to shove, they are brandishing switchblades and being very menacing. But there's a really interesting dichotomy going on in this one, in that they seem to be spurned on by this rich upper-class lady who's getting off on the atrocities they're committing. Like, I, they feel like low-level thugs at the start of the movie, but then they become violent misogynist rapists almost to entertain this, this rich woman, and like she has this almost like Caligulian fantasy that she's enacting on these teen girls. And, you know, like she gets with the dude's while watching the torment that these uh, the the teens are being put under, and there's this weird dynamic there where it's almost I wonder if you can make an interesting comment on fascism there, like Italian fascism and how they would always like with Solo with the ruling class perpetrating crimes on the lower people. Is she using her high status? to remove herself from doing these awful things because she can just make the people lower than her and act them for her pleasure kind of thing. And it, it kind of, that dichotomy or that, sorry, that dynamic reminded me a bit of Solo. And the sexual violence in this is just awful. It's some of the worst from the Video Nasty era. Uh, and yet a lot of it is off screen and implied, but it's just still so rough to sit through. Uh, culminating, of course, in the where they say they're going to take someone's virginity with a switchblade, and it's about as awful as that sounds. But when they dump the bodies off the train and show up at the train station, of course, the uh, bully or one of the uh, thugs kicked the old woman in the shin, getting mad at her for working them up so much. And so at the tr the train station, the father, who is also a doctor in this one is called to help her knee and he offers to take care of her with some stitches if they come back to his house and so we have so many parallels there like the doctor father the uh the sort of gross gang using this air of respectability to try and show that they're not that awful to get their way into their home this Their home and the way it plays in this movie really harkens to something I talked about a little bit with Last House, but the class element. There's this class element through all of these movies. 
um, the remake follows of Last House follows the similar kind of thing where the parents are at their their summer house and they have all this nice stuff for them. They're showed as being they're shown as being upper class, and the uh, lower class thugs comment on that for sure. But it's so in your face in Night Train Murders, where when we see all the bad things happening to the teens, it's always cutting to the lavish Christmas party that the parents are throwing. And like there's this this conversation going on where a poor child was mauled to death by a dog for stealing apples from an orchard. And they're talking about how horrible the ills of the world are today. Uh, some people are saying like, well, you know, he was stealing, so he had it coming. And there's one guy one hero who's just like actually we're to blame we have created a society that enables this kind of violence and everyone sort of scoffs at this but you see the juxtaposition of these like comfortable rich people without a care in the world versus the class violence that is occurring between the the girls the lower class thugs and the high class woman who's orchestrating it the ending on this one is very bleak because of uh, unlike in the other movies, the villain sort of gets away with it in this one. And when I say that, we do get revenge against the rapist, and it is fantastic. Like, uh, the doctor smashes an IV bottle in one of their faces and then stabs them through the genitals with the uh, IV stand and hunts another one down through the woods with a big old shotgun. And it's just, you know, you get your typical gory revenge sequence going on. But knowing finding out that she is in the house of the people that they tormented the the woman doesn't tell the other guys and instead plays the victim saying that they made her do it and they were going to kill her and she essentially looks on knowingly with a cruel smile while the revenge is exacted but she's sort of not taken to account in any of this and i think it's a comment that like her class status saved her she's got that respectability and it's you know, when you fall into this uh, trap of violence, it is the lower class people who will be blamed for the violence, regardless of who is culpable. I'm not saying that they're off the hook on this. They are awful actors in this, and they are disgusting, and they are every and the revenge is every bit as sweet. But at the same time, there that class comment just kind of shows where that struggle of violence lies. Speaking of class, there's also during the the atrocities on the train. There's this well-to-do man who starts watching, like he's getting excited watching these guys uh, commit violence on these women. And when they catch him, they force him to rape her, but he does not put up much of a fight. He just goes with it and then runs off. You know, they don't even try to stop him and all that. And then the next thing we see is he's hustling off the train to make a phone call and he's talking to his family and he's just talking lovingly to his family about Christmas plans and all that stuff. But it's when he hears on the news that the two women were murdered that he calls in a tip and he's allowed that anonymity and he just disappears into the world like he, there's no, no comeuppance for him. He's able to just drop into this violent action and then take himself right back out because he isn't constrained by the violence that surrounds his daily life because there is none. So I think that even though this one plays like almost a poor imitator of Last House on the Left, I think there's a lot there that actually elevates this movie and makes it really interesting to dive into. 
I think it'd be a mistake to just brush it off completely. It is a bit of a nasty watch. I mean, it is a video nasty, but some of those you just fall asleep through. But I don't know, it's it's stuck with me. I've seen it a few times over the year, and I think I didn't quite appreciate the deeper themes until a bit later on or after a few rewatches. But I, I do recommend this, and I think Last House on the Left and Night Train Murders make a great double feature. Maybe make sure that you put on something light afterwards or you've got the stomach for it. Uh, but and be warned they are chock full of misogynistic sexual violence there are rape scenes in them so if that is an immediate no for you which i can completely understand why that would be for a lot of people uh give them a skip but if you can handle that or you're willing to watch it in spite of that i think that these are good examples of what the moral panic was about in the terms of movies that actually sort of delivered the goods. And with that, I hope you enjoyed the next installment in Gutterflix. I'm gonna keep doing these, and uh, it won't just be me every time, but it was sort of circumstances kind of forced it this way, but hey, I'm not complaining. It was sort of fun to really pick apart these movies, and even when I was sitting here recording, I sort of saw new little things I had to comment on that uh, I didn't really think about until I got into a train of thought. And I think that there's a lot of these so-called lowbrow or written-off movies, stuff that's just seen as sick for the sake of being sick, that there's a lot more there if you actually give it the chance and read into it. But as per usual, I will stick to convention and give a recommendation. This is a movie we've talked about, but it is, again, if you are watching stuff that is in the Rape Revenge canon, it's kind of hard to to miss this movie it's miss 45 by abel ferrara uh at a later date i will be getting a little more deeply into his work when i get back to driller killer for a future gutter flicks like i said i'm gonna do all the video nasties um i'll try and come up with an original take on it so i'm not just regurgitating how we covered it in a previous episode but i'm gonna do that and i guess i will leave with a question uh, for anyone on Twitter or Insta or whoever wants to maybe follow, uh, what's the worst movie you've ever seen? And I don't mean worst as in bad, I mean worst as in least stomachable. Like, what is the most horrible thing you've seen as far as a movie goes? I think I'll do a future episode talking about the singular worst movie I've ever seen that I still can't bring myself to watch again, but who knows, maybe I'll stomach it someday again, though, to be honest, I don't really want to. But until then, and until we get into our regular episodes next time, take it easy and keep it sleazy.